Welcome, one and all, to Past the Border, the podcast of time and place where in each episode we discover a new part of the history behind the world we've come to live in. I'm Miko Cleland, and we've got a very exciting show for you with a really great guest. So without further ado, our journey begins at the end of Roman rule in one of their outermost provinces, Britannia. Romans, for the most part, left Britain in the late 300s, and a number of groups began to take advantage of this lack of control, making their way to England in greater and greater numbers. Notably, the Picts and the Scots of the northern reaches of the island. No Roman coins have been found in any large amount dating beyond 402, suggesting that this was the year that Roman control effectively ceased entirely. In the 400s, so desperate were the Britons for help that appeals were written and delivered, begging Rome for protection from this new threat of great invasion. The barbarians drive us to the sea, the sea drives us to the barbarians. Between these two means of death, we're either killed or drowned. The reply that came the following year instructed the people of the province to look to your own defences. No help was coming. This was the era of early Anglo-Saxon England. For this episode, as we delve into what made this time and place really tick, I'm joined by a very special guest. He's a member of an early migration period reenactment group portraying Anglo-Saxon life from the 5th to 7th century, and he's a member of the Norse shamanic band Seetheblut, where he's just come back from Norway playing the Viking burial mounds of Midgard, mixing historical instruments with modern sound and Norse mythology to make something really new and unique. He's Tom Atkinson. Welcome, Tom. Hi, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I guess you really are the person to ask, but who were the Angles and the Saxons and when did they arrive and just how much did those two groups differ? It's a great question, actually. I think really to understand British Anglo-Saxon history, we briefly look further back to understand their origins. It's a key place to start to understand why further down the line they came to Britain and the actions they took. The term Anglo-Saxon is quite a vague term, I guess, and it actually was made up of a number of different groups. It wasn't just the two. So primarily we have the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes. We also have the Frisians and other sort of various small tribes and sub-tribes that came from the northern reaches of Germania. The Comitatus is kind of a good place to start and it's a Roman name for something that's very Germanic in origin. It was a name that was given to a shift in Germanic traditions. So we're looking at the way that the Germanic tribes had fought against Roman aggression and changed them from fighting as tribe-centric or family based units to that of Germanic chieftains taking on warriors from many other tribes into their war bands and forming units this way. And when we say Germanic, are we referring yeah. to sort of modern Germany or does this cover a larger area? Yeah, so it does cover a number of different areas. I, I'd say for reference, modern day terms, we're looking, say, Denmark, Netherlands, northern Germany. We're even potentially looking at some of the tribes coming from Belgium, France areas. Mm -hmm. But the main culture came from northern Germany, shall we say. As I say, the, the sort of the idea was moving away from the localized tribe-centric idea of family-based units or to the local areas fighting as a tribe. And instead, we were looking at these elder chieftains taking on younger warriors from different areas and forming these larger war bands that went off to fight for various reasons, but looking to kind of split the bounty between them in the raids. So although blood was still counted above all as, as something important, if you fought in an army with your family members, they were still more important than anything else. 
you were fighting in groups of young and dangerous warriors ready to battle and fight for money and wealth and fame. So it kind of changed away from the localized fighting to more on a grander scale. Um, so I know we hear about Viking raids and things like that. So yes. this wasn't just a raiding thing. This was as mercenaries. This was for anyone that would pay them. Is that right? Correct. We, we really saw sort of a change in how they fought. I mean, I wouldn't say primarily or solely just because of Roman aggression. There was constant fighting internally between different tribes and different groups. But we're looking really at a change in attitudes to outside help, really, in joining those war bands. And this was something that was very early. I mean, we're talking a couple hundred years before Britain became something for the Anglo-Saxons. This was a change of dynamics for the way they fought. And there's evidence, for example, of Germanic soldiers fighting as mercenaries against each other, against foreign armies, and even individuals joining the Roman armies to fight in the auxiliary. We have evidence that suggests there's Germanic soldiers that were stationed on Hadrian's Wall. And we've also got evidence that suggests they went as far as the Middle East as well. So we're not just looking at these localized tribes. We're looking definitely on a grander scale. Part of this evidence is Trajan's Column, one of Rome's most amazing works of art, really, a column that's in Rome. And it depicts Trajan's victories in AD 101 to 106. And here you can see the Roman armies marching into battle, doing battle with the enemy. And you can see a number of bear and wolf-hooded Germanic warriors fighting in oh. those columns as well. And we're talking AD 101, these battles. So it's something that predated change from localized fighting. I think they quickly realized that there was money to be made, adventure and fame and fortune and all these things. It definitely changed. So with regards to Anglo-Saxon history, when it comes to Britain, with this background of how it was looking with the German tribes and the way they were forming with, with the younger braves joining from other villages and tribes, the Anglo-Saxons first ventured to the British shores when the Romans withdrew between sort of 400 to 410 because tribes such as the Vandals and the Goths were moving across the Danube. There was a, a lot of movement happening in Central Europe that was forcing the Romans to relocate their armies. A character called Constantine III declared himself Emperor of Britain and then as soon as he'd done that, removed himself and withdrew his men to fight on the continent, leaving the remaining Romano-British to fend for themselves. The thoughts are then that the Germanic warriors were invited over. And again, this was by a character called Vortigern. Evidence suggests that he was the leader of the remaining Romano-British at the time. And the arrival of the Saxons to settle is around the 449 AD, although it's tough to be specific of this time. The call came from the remaining Romano-British who had been abandoned by the legions, as you mentioned. So they were sending requests to the capital and to Central Europe looking for anybody to come and help them because the invading Pictish and Scotty tribes, which again, for reference, a kind of modern day Ireland and Scotland, as well as internal power struggles. All of these things were happening at the same time. And it really left the Romano-British with no one to defend themselves. The problem was that with all of this happening, the lack of power meant that there was a power vacuum and a power struggle. They needed an army to come and defend them. And the Romans being Romans, they did what they knew best, which was to get other nations and other people to fight their wars for them, <laughs> uh, which is pretty much what they did a lot of the time. So they sent out a request and the Anglo-Saxon heeded the call and ventured over to become a mercenary army for them. So this is a continuation of European history that's been in play for centuries beforehand. There wasn't a lightning bolt moment where history changed. This is the next logical progression in a larger story. Definitely, definitely, yeah. You find that um, a lot of these pieces do move because other pieces have moved previously. It's a long-running story that's been taking place. The fall of the Roman Empire is something we see a lot of changes across the 
continental Europe and a lot of pressure points in various other places that kind of forced their hand really and Britain being one of those places that was kind of abandoned because there wasn't a lot of choice or there's various different views and opinions on, on what was happening at the time but potentially you could say the Romans were spread too thin and they saw Britain as one of those that they could stand to lose but it did mean that a lot of Romano-British were left to defend themselves against those tribes and as I say the Scotty and the, the Pictish tribes who were now raiding along the coast from Ireland and down from Scotland and there wasn't a lot that those remaining Romano-British could do other than ask for help and that's really where the, the Anglo-Saxons or the Germanic tribes came over. But regarding the difference between the tribes, language was very similar but there was small differences in dialect so as I said before we're not talking about one big nation of people, we're talking about lots of different tribes with their own history and culture. A couple of examples of quite big differences in the dialects the word slave in West Saxon was Theo and the same word of slave in Jutish was late. So there's quite a difference between those two words, even though they were from essentially the same area of Northern Europe and were Germanic in culture, there was differences in those dialects. Was um, there any cross-pollination between these different cultures or did they keep themselves relatively separately? Yes, yeah, so there was definitely cross-pollination there. There was differences and also there was a large number of similarities. The language, for example, as well, language was, was different but slightly. So you have evidence to suggest that the Northern Germanic Jutes used Elder Fudark and Western Germanic Angles and Saxons brought over like an Anglo-Frisian Fudark with them to Britain. So there was different types of runic symbols, although there's there's connections there. These were types of runic language that people now more commonly associate with Vikings and runic symbols, but this was much later in history with Vikings. So this predates that. We know some examples of clothing being slightly different, but again, large majorities of this was this cross-pollination. So there was a lot of similarities with subtle differences, if that makes sense. We have different items of clothing, brooches, jewellery. It would have all been worn in various ways and different ways from tribe to tribe. However, the overall styles would have been very similar. Their religion was one of those things that was basically the same pagan Germanic. But again, where there's similarities, there's also differences. They would have had their traditions from tribe to tribe and even family to family. There would have been wow. specific things per family. But it's very similar to if you were from one tribe and you traveled to the next tribe over, it wouldn't be this insanely different thing that you wouldn't be able to get used to. It would be different quirk to the way that you did it, essentially. Mm -hmm. But it would be something you'd be able to quickly get on board with and be able to honor that system that they do as well. So there wasn't in any particular Anglo-Saxon identity as a block at that point? Definitely not. Yeah, it, it would be very tough to suggest that. The term Anglo-Saxon potentially didn't come into use until after the Dane law. The points where Wessex was claiming victories over the invading Vikings and uniting more of the areas together. And um, that was in the 700s, 800s, that sort of period? Yeah, this is it. So to call it Anglo-Saxon at this point is difficult because I think that really underestimates the number of tribes that were taking part in this right. and sort of coming over to Britain. So until that point, say, when after Dane law and Vikings are, are more involved on British soil, those tribes continue to carry their own names. And we don't necessarily know what these names are for certain, but they definitely carried those on once they were over here. There's a debate taking place in academic circles whether the name Anglo-Saxon is appropriate for this time period. We continue to use it, and I will continue to use it for this discussion because it's the terminology since I was a boy learning about it in school. This is the name that was given to this time period. But many feel that this period would be better suited calling it an early medieval period, right. as it's more appropriate as an Anglo-Saxon reference is only two groups of people. This term doesn't include the Romano-British, the Scotty, the Picts and Celtic affiliations that were there. All of these shouldn't be forgotten because they're all interacting during this time. These were whole groups of people that were interacting with each other, not to mention foreign interactions as well. So we're looking further afield than the British Isles to mainland Europe as well. So I think just as we've done away with the term of Dark Ages, we kind of need to look at maybe moving it along from Anglo-Saxon as well and looking more at a broader term such as early medieval.
evil. Right. Was there much interaction after the, the, the Saxons arrived in Britain? Did they continue to trade and converse with the mainland? Definitely, yeah. So again, moving away from that Dark Ages term, it was anything but dark. So we know these very different groups arrived in Roman Britain or former Roman Britain. And we have a few sources that can tell us what happened as this was a period where not too much survives. We have to pick out what we can understand uh, through mm. these. And they don't quite agree. Uh, the most contemporary mm. historian that we have on offer is Gildas the Wise, who's a scholar of the 500s. And he described the Saxons as a scourge of God, a punishment for Romano-British impiety and tyrannical rule. And I have this fantastic quote that I shall read verbatim, which gives a terrifying picture of what this must have been like. Mm-hmm. For the fire, spread from sea to sea, fed by the hands of our foes in the east, and did not cease until, destroying the neighbouring towns and lands, it reached the other side of the island, and dipped its red and savage tongue in the western ocean. In these assaults, all the columns were levelled with the ground by the frequent strokes of the battering ram. All the husbandmen routed, together with their bishops, priests, and people, while the sword gleamed and flames crackled around them on every side. Lamentable to behold, in the midst of the streets lay the tops of lofty towers, tumbled to the ground, stones of high walls, holy altars, fragments of human bodies, covered with livid clots of coagulated blood, looking as if they'd been squeezed together in a press, and with no chance of being buried, save in the ruins of their houses, or in the ravening bellies of wild beasts and birds, with reverence be it spoken for their blessed souls, if indeed there were many found who were carried at that time into the high heaven by the holy angels." Some, therefore, of the miserable remnant being taken into the mountains were murdered in great numbers. Others, constrained by famine, came and yielded themselves to be slaves forever to their foes, running the risk of being instantly slain, which truly was the greatest favour that could be offered them. Some others passed beyond the seas with loud lamentations instead of the voice of exhortation. Others, committing the safeguard of their lives, which were in continual jeopardy, to the mountains, precipices, thickly wooded forests, and to the rocks of the seas, albeit with trembling hearts, remained still in their country Mm. it's quite terrifying sound how accurate do you think that portrayal was yeah it's something up for debate it is quite terrifying in in nature from what you've read but it's something that can be definitely debated we have to use the sources of the of the time and unfortunately someone writing specifically at those times we just don't have people that were there at that point when we're looking at those sources we have to understand what happened when the germanic warriors first stepped foot on the british soil however these sources you have to first understand the itself. For example, from beforehand, Tacitus is known for his work in Germania, which was written in sort of 98 AD and goes into great detail regarding the Germanic people. But mm. the fact is, it's written from the perspective of a Roman, which can't be ignored. Likewise, the works of Gildas and Bede, they need to be understood too. Bede wrote the a classical history of English people, I think it was in 731 AD, and therefore he wasn't writing from a direct experience. He's also writing from the perspective of a Christian as well. And you could argue these two factors made a difference, I guess, to the view that he would have had on his pagan ancestors. Modern genealogical research suggests that it was less of an invasion. It was less of this hellish scene that you, you kind of mentioned in quite earlier. And it was more of an integration. Right. So modern historical thinking suggests that Anglo-Saxons were not fans of Romano-British architecture and therefore were reluctant to move into pre-existing buildings. They would choose instead to repurpose other land or build their own buildings by rivers. Again, the difference in culture 
cultures would suggest this. So Romans like to build with stone and they like to build where it was flat. Interesting, a lot of Anglo-Saxons used to think that these Roman houses were haunted. They didn't like them. They felt strange to Anglo-Saxons and some of the evidence that we have. And so it was not something that they sort of moved in and took over those buildings. They left those to rot away, really. The British built on hills primarily. So you see a lot of hill forts and things like that. But Anglo-Saxons opted to build in valleys and next to rivers. Again, this suggests less of an invasion and more of an integration where they sort of ended up living side by side with those people. Again, examples of Saxons' preference to water and forests. This is just from my local area, really, but Heyman Funter, which means human spring, because they built a town around a water source. That's actually modern day Haven't, just outside Portsmouth. So you can see oh. where the words sort of translate through even to this day. Research writing suggested that the Anglo-Saxons repurposed and respected a lot of Romano-British and Celtic religious landmarks. So there are a number of long barrows which predate Anglo-Saxons, but been found to contain female Anglo-Saxon burials. I mean, why this is, we don't conclusively know, but it suggests they repurposed and respected ancient sites from older societies. Again, another example, Wayland Smithy, which is a site near Ashbury, I think in Oxfordshire. It's an early Neolithic burial site, and it's a great example of, of repurposing. So Wayland Smithy is one of many prehistoric sites associated with Wayland or, or Woland, a Germanic a smith god. So they're seemingly applied to the site from Saxons who settled there at a later date. And we were talking 4,000 years after it was first built. But these Saxons are then repurposing it. And so all of these things, I think if it was going to be an invading force, if it was a force there to completely wipe the culture and society that was there already, this pre-existing culture and society off the map, they would have done so in a very different way. They would have gone about it in a very different way. Our evidence suggests actually they were fully behind bringing over their own culture and their own ways of working, but they also respected and repurposed what was there already. And that goes both ways, I would say, as well. So the Romano-British actually began to take on a lot of Anglo-Saxon styles and cultural traits. As you would, I guess. I think yes. if you had a new dominating force, you'd want to kind of fit in a bit more, I guess, wouldn't you? So you look to sort of move away from Roman clothing into more Germanic ones. Again, we have evidence suggests that people started wearing a lot more of a peplos, which is like a tube material dress. A lot of females would wear a peplos and it was pinned at the shoulders with brooches. Again, this is something that was brought over from these Germanic tribes and sort of repurposed. And again, the Romana British started dressing in this way. Again, I suppose as the local people started to do when the Romans first got involved as well. Yes, I, um, I've actually got a little brooch myself that's since oh, around about 100 200 ad and it's yep. a very british celtic pattern that's merged with this sort of roman talk uh used to sort of holding a, a toga or a cape or something like that and you can see the wow. blending of the styles and i remember being very very excited when i got hold of it and it's very nice but they made so many of them that it's, <laughs> it's not actually very it's not worth it oh, yeah i can imagine i always get that way about even roman coins and stuff i always think it's so great to find an anglo-saxon coin or a roman coin and they're really not worth anything but still you're holding something of to me it's worth a lot more from a historical standpoint yeah so i know how you feel but yeah it's equally gutting i guess when someone goes yeah it's not really worth that much really is it and in terms of evidence and things that we have to look back at the saxons yeah materially i know we don't have too much by way of writing or anything like that mm. how much has survived that can give us a bit more of an idea of how they actually lived it's a really good question i think with regards to what has survived there's lots of different burial sites so i know obviously we're kind of having a flying visit of Danglo saxon uh, 
a time period today, but there's many books and research and evidence about burial sites. We found a number of different burial sites across the UK that really do give a great insight into the kind of people that we were looking at. I, I would strongly suggest and urge anybody that is looking for more information to look into these burial sites. I think that's a really good place to start, especially when it comes to types of weapons and the, the clothing that we wore and especially with jewellery and things like that and just the things that the Anglo-Saxons held uh, important to themselves. So there's a number of burial sites where animals are buried with them. I think that would probably be a, a, at least a primary source or a first place to start when trying to get an, a full understanding of, of what survived from that era. And I guess that would give us an idea of that world that they inhabited and Definitely. the world they created. There's not just physical items that are left over from that time period. There's other things in modern day as well that we can see Anglo-Saxon reference to and things that have survived since that period. The most obvious things in the modern people are aware of, I guess, is Anglo-Saxon words in the modern day English language. A lot of words and language are still used today, for example, the days of the week. Many believe this to be a Viking thing. It's not. For example, Tuesday is named after the Germanic god Chu. However, this has been reappropriated to the Viking term for the god Tyr. Likewise, Wednesday is named after the Germanic god of Woden. Another term in the English language nowadays is lawyer and boa as well for a bowmaker and lawyer for a lawmaker. Other professions such as anything with right at the end, like tree right, wood right, shipwright. These are all based on Anglo-Saxon words and they've continued through in our language. Another one, again, is the word kiss. So a lot of people think it's Viking. It's not. It's actually originally spelt with a C and is a Germanic word. So there's so many, so many there. And again, it's just about investigating those really and looking into it if that's something that is of interest. Regarding the traditions, we still observe. There's many dates throughout the year that are still with us. Yule is something that was Anglo-Saxon in nature. And again, we still uh, hold those dates close to us. And Easter or Yostra of that time, again, named after the Anglo-Saxon god, as well with conversion to Christianity. So we may have been a political move. Originating in Kent, it would suggest anyway, evidence suggests that it might have been something along those lines, more political than, say, actual of a religious nature. One of the first areas to convert would have been Kent, we believe, just because it would have been the connections to Frankia and the king that had converted there earlier. Mm -hmm. So they can continue to trade with the converted Christianity at that time. The word heathen, which we obviously still use today, suggests men of the heath or lowly farmers. And oh, so right. they didn't want that connotation really. And again, it's something that potentially they would have politically changed their views of religion as opposed to changing because of their genuine beliefs. However, it's up for debate. And again, we've kind of almost done away with the term dark ages now. There's a lot of evidence for high quality craftsmanship such as blacksmiths and trade which was huge at the time brooches swords being found with immense wealth built into them from places as far away as the middle east for example you can go and visit the sutton who helmet and it contains garnets from sri lanka wow. um, so they were really trading at that time period far and wide you know this was a, a real hub of culture and by the early 8th century the anglo-saxons had gone from heathen mercenaries to having the likes of a latin scholar born in the north of england called alquin who actually ended up working in charlemagne's court. So they really were a pillar of Western Christianity when you get towards the end of the Anglo-Saxon time period. We have so many poems, songs, rhymes and things like that. They were huge into their, their music and stories as well. So we really have got quite a, an abundance of, of information on that side of things. I know we have this vision of Anglo-Saxon culture being very militaristic and violent and a very martial world to live in. Yeah, there is a very militaristic perspective to be 
be had with the Anglo-Saxon culture. But this isn't necessarily the case, or is, this isn't the sole attribute that they had. They they were a, a military culture, and, and as I say, especially from the early periods onwards, they were a group of people that saw conflict and war and battle as a necessity. However, there was also a great love of the arts and for finery. To say that the Anglo-Saxons were lovers of jewellery and all things gold and ornate, one of the things that actually comes up quite a lot and I get the feel for is they essentially wore their bling pretty much. They, they were very much a culture that loved to show off their wealth and their bling and their money and the power that they possessed. They would very much wear the most elaborate clothes and brooches and jewellery that they could afford and this was very much a, a sign of your standing not to mention just physically what they wore and what they showed off to the other members of the tribe or of town. They were lovers of stories. For example Beowulf is a very popular and well-known story from Anglo-Saxon times and again it's been something that's lasted all the way through to modern day and it's still very much accessible. Riddles as well that have survived. The Exeter book for example although is a largely Christian book does contain many different riddles. They particularly did love a riddle. So this was a group of people with a lot of culture and a lot to give with regards to Europe as well and there was a lot of trade that was going on for that. So there's a lot more to it than just fighting really. Wow and when we look at this I know we've got perhaps a bit of a rise of Saxon chic I guess you can call it of late yes, um, yeah. in these portrayals of the Anglo-Saxon world as cinema television really getting involved and telling all these stories from the world of the former dark ages. If we want to see more of that period and we want to learn more about this are these the mm. kind of places to look or is this a very very bad idea? Uh, yeah it's good and bad it has uh, you know I'm all for having Anglo-Saxons portrayed in uh, modern popular culture and on television and in films and books and things like that because I do think it's a time period that isn't necessarily covered as well as it could be in this country. You do have to go into watching something on television or a film that contains Anglo-Saxons and not just that but Vikings and anything from that kind of period of time you do have to take a pinch of salt. I, I would say that again the best place to look is with research into in particular burial sites because that really gives an accurate idea of the types of things they would have been wearing the types of things they held close to them and valuable to them these are things that they wanted to take into the afterlife and they were the most important things that made them who they were when you look at uh, the way they're portrayed on television and film today for example i know two of the key ones that come up is the tv show vikings and also the tv show last kingdom both of these there are parts that are correct to that time period characters in the last kingdom i believe are mostly correct the names used many story arcs that cover certain historical truths king alfred's illnesses Ethelfred and Ethelred, Guthrum, Uber, they all existed. And again, there's particular scenes in Last Kingdom where King Edmund's death, again, this seems to be quite accurate to what we know. Um, and actually, from his death, he was then made into a saint. And this led to, you can now actually go and visit Bury St. Edmunds, um, right. which is named after King Edmund. These are points that are all based in truth. Whether it then shows or portrays Anglo-Saxons accurately with regards to other aspects, not so much, I would say. There's, there's points. There's certain things that I pick out as well when watching these shows and I do probably point to reenactment and things because immediately it's kind of almost ruined these shows for me a bit <laughs> I watch them and I go oh that's not accurate or you know something like that and I can't fully get involved and, and invested in these things but I think you have to kind of take them as I say with all the pinch of salt again Vikings some names of the characters can be argued that they existed in this time period or no not all of them and certainly not the links that they have to each other some some are seen as the son of and and they weren't they weren't connected in that way but that's where the accuracy ends with that again the Anglo-Saxon 
Saxons in the show are portrayed in quite a different way to the way the evidence suggests. Um, it doesn't take away from any of these shows being entertaining. It just mm. means that you have to back them up with your own factual research, really. Wow. And then I can remember, this is the, the big one for me, I guess, that it was about 2004, there was that King Arthur movie, um, yes. fairly big yeah. budget. I think you had Kira Knightley in it and a few That's others. One, yeah. That was you know, King Arthur being a Roman soldier right in the final days of Roman Britain with those mm. Saxons oncoming, this monolithic, terrifying force. So how close to reality was that? Yeah, I remember that film. And I was, again, same as you, I, I was really looking forward to seeing it. And uh, yeah, I, I would say there's a small truth in it probably. I think the film plays on the school of thought that Arthur was actually a Roman general. I think the name, I remember looking this up and it's Ambrosius, I think it's Aurelianus, but the Roman general that was fighting the fall of the Roman Empire in this invading Saxon army. Again, it depicts a Saxon invasion, which again, you could argue is correct, I guess. However, the story, the portrayal of the Celts, the use of woad, druids, the costumes, even the Sarmatian knights, I think, were the knights of the round table. All of this is kind of difficult to find any sort of factual backing for this i'd pretty much say that's kind of just hollywood really i think the best metaphor for this whole movie really is that the roman bishop who assigns the quest to go beyond uh-huh. uh, the wall and save some roman child this uh, there was an actor called ivano mariscotti and okay. um, when he took the role he didn't speak a word of English and he had to learn as he performed so he speaks English in the movie but he's he's reading the script and has no idea what he's saying he has absolutely <laughs> no concept of what's going on and that is the best way I can describe the film because I think we're, we're all in the same boat we're sort of yeah. going through and watching these things happen around and trying to pull something from it so uh, yeah. I think, yes looking at him really explains the film a little bit more I, I, I know you're right. that, yeah. Uh, yeah Lord of the Rings as well has as I, mm. I guess a little bit of a Saxon interest. I know Tolkien was very keen on his old English history and that yeah. maybe comes through not only in the book but in the movie as well yeah definitely I think Tolkien as you quite rightly say was a big fan of Anglo-Saxon history and it does come through multiple points in the book I think it's literally kind of personified almost or comes through a lot quite strongly with the, the writers of Rohan there's a lot of Anglo-Saxon links there should we say uh, which is which is really great and of course obviously Tolkien uh, wrote or, or did a retelling of the Beowulf story as well which has recently been edited and released by his son so oh wow um, yeah so you, that's that's something that's available as well. Many of the names and designs used in the books and ideas were taken from, from Anglo-Saxon history and culture, which is great. And and I would say that that kind of thing is probably something that maybe Vikings and Lost Kingdom can maybe learn from. And likewise, films like King Arthur. And don't get me wrong, I love the shows. I love all three in their own rights as something that's full of action and we can just enjoy, but you've got to let go of the accuracies, I think, to fully enjoy them. But with regards to Tolkien as well, another sort of link that I like to think is connected to Anglo-Saxon history is obviously Gollum loves a riddle plays a game of riddles with Bilbo in The Hobbit again Anglo-Saxons love a riddle so I think that, uh, you know, we've got, as I said before, many written in the Exeter book. And although this is a religious text, the Anglo-Saxons really like to double entendre. So they wrote some uh, quite interesting riddles. Do you want to hear one? I have one. Oh, always. I, uh, yeah. There's a bit of history <laughs> that we can all play at home. I'm always <laughs> up for that. Okay. So uh, it goes as follows. I am a wonderful help to women, the hope of something to come. I harm no citizen except my slayer. Rooted, I stand on a high bed. I am shaggy below. Sometimes the beautiful peasant's daughter, an eager armed, proud woman grabs my body, rushed my red skin, holds me hard, claims my head. The curly head woman who catches me fast will feel our meeting. Her eye will be wet. What could the answer possibly be? Um, 
<laughs> I, I want to say, is it a river or a fish? I'm trying to think no. of all the things that were in uh, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> no, no, it's nothing in, nothing to do with Lord of the Rings. This is uh, so. The answer, of course, is an onion. Um, ah, yeah. There you go. What else? What else could it be, Miko? What else could there be? I, I, I can't <laughs> think for the life of me what it could have been. <laughs> it just—it's purely an onion, and let's leave that there. So no one needs to hear any other ideas. Um, but that's, as I say, one of many riddles that were written down in this Exeter book, and and even to this day and age is something that we can still enjoy and read through and i think that's something that again going forward as we further delve deeper into anglo-saxon history because it is such still a gray area with knowledge we're still reading things from hundreds of years before or hundreds of years after i think the more we delve into it and the more we uncover hopefully the more light will be shed on on their ways and traditions in that time period Wow, I think we're definitely going to have to talk more about it and maybe look at some <laughs> other elements at some point in the future. There's uh, so we've much we've not to... touched on. <laughs> yes, exactly. We've managed to fit so much into this episode and we've covered such a huge period that we're going to have to take a deeper dive into these sort of individual kingdoms and later eras, definitely. But uh, thank you very much, Tom, for a really fascinating overview of everything that made early Anglo-Saxon England tick. And uh, we will definitely have to get you back in future because we do have so much more to cover. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me today. It's been an absolute pleasure as you say we've kind of visited early medieval anglo-saxon life today and really understood such a large and diverse time period i think we've only just kind of scratched the surface so yeah it would be great to kind of cover more things off and go into a bit more detail potentially i just wanted to, to obviously thank a couple of people that, that sort of helped me if that's all right really with getting everything ready obviously my wife for support and for listening to me as i sort of test a, a few bits of knowledge on her a colleague of mine tom tribe who assisted me with my research and tom's actually a teacher of blacksmithing and he specializes in anglo-saxon pieces so wow. if anybody's interested in checking out actual pieces that were made in the anglo-saxon period then do a search for iron boar forge on instagram and you'll find his page and then if you're interested in anything regarding anglo-saxon reenactment i think it's it's a very underrated way of living the actual life it's the best way of kind of doing some like live research and, and really sort of experiencing what they would have experienced so head over to www.hampshirereenactment.com where you can find more out about the anglo-saxon group that i'm part of or follow me on instagram which is red wolf the scold and then obviously as you said at the very beginning i'm part of a band called cedar blut so if you're interested do a google search you'll find cedar blut and it'll have all of our dates and everything on there so come and check us out that's fantastic so that's all we've got time for right now but you can find past the border wherever you usually listen to your podcasts if you like this episode leave a review subscribe there be the first to hear about any more uh, we've got many more episodes on the way hopefully very very soon and until next time safe travels <laughs>